0: That's stamps.com. Code program.
1: The king is not England. And England is not the king. It is not the survival of the king that is at issue here. It is the
0: survival of England.
1: And this king, by his dishonesties, by his treasons and by his secret treaties with foreign powers, has shown himself to be ill-fitted to govern this great nation! One of the most notorious figures in British history, Oliver Cromwell, played by the actor Richard Harris. Having led the Parliament of England's armies against King Charles I during the English Civil War, and seen to it that the king was executed... Cromwell went on to rule the British Isles as Lord Protector from 1653 to 1658. But how did Cromwell rise to play his part in the overthrow of the monarchy? Why did he take on Ireland and Scotland? And why is he now considered one of the ten greatest Britons of all time? I'm Rob Weinberg, and to answer the big questions about this controversial figure, I'm talking to historian Dr Rebecca Warren. This is How and Why History. Rebecca, thank you very much for joining me. Why is Oliver Cromwell such an important figure in English history?
2: Well I think Cromwell is important for two slightly different reasons. So historically Perhaps the most important thing about him is that he was one of those figures who really forced the nation to ask an absolutely fundamental question, which is, how do we want to be ruled? So prior to the civil wars, government is by the king or the queen, with a privy council, and occasionally with parliament, if they choose to call it. But Cromwell and the parliamentarians challenge that form of government for the first time ever. And they experiment with what is effectively a form of republican government and i think that makes them so important in the history of the british isles now there are other things too so cromwell for example champions the right to freedom or relative freedom of religious worship and also for example it is through cromwell that we have the beginnings of the modern british army so that's a historical importance but i think there are two important ideas that he represents too. First of all, he personifies for us the ideal that you can rise from obscurity to a position of ultimate power through your own abilities. Now, Cromwell was not part of the ruling elite, but he took on the establishment of the crown and he became, of course, the leader of the country. For us, of course, that means he is the ultimate self-made man. So that's one idea that he represents. But there's a second as well. And that is that his story, and particularly through the tragic bloodshed that took place in Ireland, warns us that terrible things can be done by otherwise well-meaning people. And so we must constantly ask ourselves today as well, just how far the ends justify the means. So I think these are all questions that are still really relevant today and they are for some reason personified for us by the figure of Cromwell.
1: What do we know about Oliver Cromwell's early life?
2: (laughs) For such a famous man, the answer is very little indeed. And that's really because for the first half of his life, he simply wasn't important enough to enter the records. He was born in 1599, in other words, a late Elizabethan in Huntingdon in East Anglia and his family were amongst the ranks of the minor gentry. He is indeed related to Thomas Cromwell of Henry VIII fame, but distantly, he's not a direct descendant. He went to school in Huntingdon in what is now the wonderful Cromwell Museum, and then he goes on to university. He goes to Sydney Sussex in Cambridge, and he's there for about a year, but at the end of that year, his father dies. And we think that what happens is that he has to go home to look after his mother and his very large number of sisters. He is now the head of the household. We don't really know what he's then doing for two or three years. But we do know that in 1620, he gets married to a lady called Elizabeth Bourchier. And it's a long and happy marriage. And essentially, he is a householder who is involved in local politics. Briefly, he becomes an MP for Huntingdon in 1628 but that parliament ends in 1629. Now, in the late 1620s, he undergoes an economic decline to the extent that he has to sell his property and he moves as a tenant farmer with his family to St. Ives. And they're barely clinging on to gentry status. They've become yeoman status. And it's only in 1636 when he is left property by an uncle in Ely that he can move his family to Ely and rejoin the ranks of the gentry and pick up again some level of status in local politics. And by 1640, he is once again an MP in Parliament.
1: Going back a little bit, how important to his development was his religious conversion during the 1630s? Did that have an influence on his rise to power?
2: Yes, I mean, you cannot overestimate the importance of this so we don't know when exactly but sometime in the early 1630s he undergoes a profound puritan conversion process and he becomes what we term one of the godly so we use the phrase the godly and this is so important for two reasons so in the first place it gives him then and for the rest of his life a higher purpose something to strive for So what we need to understand is that the godly are constantly striving. It's an internal fight for the salvation of their own souls, but they're also striving, if you like, externally to establish God's kingdom on earth. And Cromwell will devote the rest of his life to this cause. The other reason is that it draws him into a community of East Anglian Puritans. And this community includes magnates like the Earl of Warwick, Viscount Say and Seal, and other important political figures like John Hamden, Charles I's nemesis, and Hamden's lawyer, Oliver St. John. Now Cromwell has been already on the periphery of this group through family connections, but it is his conversion and his commitment to the godly cause that really draws him closer to them. Because what one has to remember with the godly is that they regard themselves as a society within society. So in other words, you're either out or you're in. And Cromwell is now in. And when Charles rules the country without Parliament in the 1630s, these Puritans are relatively powerless. But once Parliament is recalled in 1640, they will move back into positions of power and Cromwell will move with them.
1: You mentioned this escalating dissatisfaction with King Charles I. What was it about his attitudes and practices that so upset the parliamentarians and indeed the gentry in East Anglia?
2: So in the first place, people really dislike the fact that Charles is reliant on favourites. When he becomes king in the mid-1620s, he takes on his father's favourite, the Duke of Buckingham. Now, people hate Buckingham for all sorts of reasons. He's a deeply unpleasant character and the fact that he wields great influence over Charles is loathed by a great many people. Now, Buckingham was assassinated in 1628, and thereafter, Charles becomes very close to his queen, Henrietta Maria. Now, she's not a political influence, so that's okay, but she has two other disadvantages. Firstly, she's French, but much worse than that, she is a Catholic. And so suddenly it is seen that the king has a really strong Catholic influence at the very heart of his reign. And this is very frightening. Another of the grievances is religion. Charles and his Archbishop, William Lord, follow a policy of trying to move the English church away from the rather severe Calvinism of the early 1600s towards a more ceremonial, liturgical, hierarchical form of Protestantism. A great many people, in particular the godly, are horrified by this because they think it's the beginning of a return to Catholicism. And the godly's goal has been all this time to move further away from popery, not back towards it.
0: Answer me, who has done this?
1: An edict, squire, from the archbishop himself and by order of the king.
0: By order of the king? Is the Church of England not a Protestant church? Would the king turn the house of God into a Roman temple? Mr. Cromwell,
1: I beseech
0: you. Does the king think that God can be bought
1: with gold, trinkets, and gilded rubbish? I know only
0: that I have been instructed. Has this king forgotten the Reformation? Mr. Cromwell, away with us, popish, idolatry! Thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven image. Now bow down to them. Has this king
1: forgotten the Spanish Inquisition? Is the Roman Catholic Church to have a seat in Westminster?
2: And then there's another really big set of grievances, and this is about money and reform. So Charles desperately needs money. All kings need money. But Charles in particular, he has expensive foreign wars to fight. He's got favourites to favour and he's got a really expensive taste in art. Now, normally, kings get the bulk of their income from certain taxes that they're allowed to levy and from parliamentary grants. In other words, a payout by Parliament. But Parliament has got very fed up with giving the king money. And this is the same for his father, James I when it sees that money being spent on unpopular wars and frittered away on favourites and luxuries and so on. And so they refuse to give him the traditional taxes and grants that he would have expected unless he promises to reform. Now, you can imagine that Charles is not going to reform. This is a sort of blackmail, I suppose. And he ends up dissolving Parliament and ruling alone for the next 11 years. Well, that's bad enough because without Parliament, of course, you can have no meaningful dialogue with the king. But worse still is the fact that without parliament, Charles now has nobody to give him any money. And so what he does is he operates what's called the royal prerogative. And that's an excuse, if you like, for doing things without asking parliament. In other words, stuff the king can do and he doesn't have to ask anybody to do it. And he uses the royal prerogative to levy a tax called ship money, which is deeply unpopular in itself, but really resented because taxation is one of those things that Parliament traditionally has to agree to. And so by using his prerogative, he is betraying the relationship between monarch and Parliament. And worse still, he then uses his prerogative courts, again, his own courts, to enforce this unpopular taxation and his unpopular religious policies. So there's a whole basket full of resentment going on in the 1630s.
1: Two names that we are familiar with from this period are the Cavaliers and the Roundheads. Who were the Roundheads and how did Cromwell get involved with them?
2: So the Roundheads are the Parliamentarian Army. And it's a very interesting term because it's derogatory. And we think it comes about because it's saying to people that the parliamentarian armies are drawn from the ranks of the apprentices, particularly from London. Now, the apprentices are young men who are learning their trade. They're not yet settled. And for some reason, they tend to have short hair. So it's referring to the number of apprentices in the parliamentarian army. But what's really interesting about that is that it is really talking about honour and class. Now, in the 17th century, there's an absolute link between class and honour. The higher class you are, the more honourable you are. So what this term Roundhead is really saying is Parliament's army is dishonourable because it's made up of working class men. So it's a real slur on the men of the Parliamentarian army. Cromwell, nevertheless, becomes involved in the army and he becomes a cavalry commander.
1: And what was the New Model Army then?
2: So the New Model Army, the way they call themselves is New Modeled Army. They call themselves the New Modeled Army or the Army New Modeled. And it's a major reform of the army that takes place halfway through the Civil War. The reason for it is that despite winning the Battle of Mastermoor in 1644, The war's been going pretty badly for Parliament overall, and Cromwell and a number of his colleagues blame some of their senior commanders, in particular his own commander, the Earl of Manchester. And they push for the army to be reformed, partly to get rid of these commanders, but partly to improve the efficiency of the army itself. And this is what, it's the reformed army that is the new modelled army. What they develop is an army that is now a single national force with most importantly of all, a single command structure. And this replaces the regional regiments that have existed up until then, which have been raised locally and commanded by local aristocrats, who have all competed with each other for authority. In the new modeled army, it's also important to recognize that there is an emphasis on paying the soldiers properly, on promoting those within the ranks on merit, not just on class. And I think it's also worth remembering that there's something else going on as well and that is that Cromwell himself seeks to recruit men who share his godly vision no matter who they are and no matter what their background and so for some at least of the New Model Army there is a really godly ethos as well and that makes it very distinctive.
0: Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: So to what extent did Cromwell believe he was fighting on the side of God?
2: Completely. His sense that he is doing God's work for him on Earth is fundamental to all of his actions in the war. So he believes that God is using him as an instrument of his will, and he's constantly looking for God's guidance and then acting upon it. This is God's providence, what he is doing. And indeed, when things go badly wrong, as they occasionally do, he beats himself up trying to work out what he's done wrong. Maybe he's missed what God was trying to tell him. But overall, certainly during the Civil War, I think we can see his attitude absolutely summed up by something he wrote after the Battle of Langport, actually, in 1645. And he writes back to report and he says, to see this, this is a great victory, a great victory at Langport. He says, to see this, is it not to see the face of God? And that tells you all, I think, that you need to know about Cromwell's attitude to doing the work of God.
1: What was the decisive moment in the English Civil War which led to Charles I's downfall?
2: That's a really hard one because every event has its beginnings in another event, doesn't it? But I think it's the Battle of Preston in 1648. The background to this is that by 1647, Charles I has been captured, but he is still managing to secretly deal with the Scots. He's trying to work out an alliance with the Scots. And in the meantime... A whole series of royalist uprisings have broken out across the country. And this is what we term the Second Civil War. So this is 1647-48. And it culminates in an invasion from the north by a Scottish royalist army, the Scottish Covenanters. Now, Cromwell and Lambert have been fighting across the country, but they catch up with the Scottish army at Preston in Lancashire. And they inflict an absolutely devastating defeat on the Scottish army. Now, that defeat is bad enough for Charles, but there's something I think equally, if not more important, going on. Because the thinking goes like this People think that God has shown his will through Parliament's victory in the First Civil War. It was God's will that Parliament won. So when Charles opens up war again and brings great bloodshed on his country in the Second Civil War, He is not just defying Parliament, but he is openly defying God. And in a religion saturated society that we're dealing with in this period, I think one can't underestimate how important that is. Charles has brought terrible bloodshed on his people and he has defied God. And what might God do in retribution? And so after Preston, I think the mood changes, partly because the army is now becoming a potent force in politics. And I think. It's after Preston that we start to see people now openly talking about removing the king altogether. Not coming to a settlement, removing him altogether.
1: So the roundheads are victorious in the Civil War, the king faces execution. How did Cromwell himself then come to power as Lord Protector?
2: The Civil War ends in 1651 and after that the Royalist threat is crushed. and. There are experiments as to how to run parliament, how to rule a republic, without a king. And ultimately, both the long parliament fails, but also the experimental assembly they put together in 1653 also fails. And there is a split between radicals and more conservative MPs in the nominated assembly, this replacement parliament and it becomes unworkable. And finally, the more moderates in the nominated assembly, that's also known as Barebones Parliament, go to Cromwell and effectively hand over power and ask him if he will take control because Parliament can no longer govern the country. So he becomes protector at the very end of 1653.
1: What role does Cromwell then play in defeating the Royalist and Confederate coalition in Ireland? And also, he takes on Scotland as well.
2: Yes, in both these cases, the real root of the problem is that both Ireland and Scotland offer the chance for the Royalists to regroup and to reinvade, so there's always going to be a Royalist threat to the sovereignty of England, to the English Parliament, whilst Scotland and Ireland are able to operate as they wish. So Cromwell ends up leading an army into Ireland and putting down any remaining resistance within Ireland and of course that unfortunately leads to the dreadful bloodshed in the first two sieges that he undertakes at Drogheda and Wexford but ultimately this policy is successful. With Scotland he has to again crush the royalist threat and it's particularly bad because It's in Scotland that Charles, who will become Charles II, this is Charles I's son, and who has been proclaimed king in Scotland, can mount a second royalist invasion. They decide on a preemptive strike, and Cromwell goes up to Dunbar in Scotland and defeats a Scottish army of royalists there. But Charles II is still at large, and they decide the best way to get rid of him is to allow him to invade England and to trap him. And that's exactly what happens. Charles II invades again with a royalist army from Scotland. He's trapped by the parliamentarians at Worcester, and he barely escapes with his life. And after that, the royalist threat, both from Scotland and Ireland, is finally neutralised.
1: Was there a tangible difference then to life in Britain with Cromwell in power? Did he set about reforming the nation's morals or did people's lives improve economically?
2: Well, there's a slight difference in government, of course. Parliament continues, but now Oliver Cromwell is head of state and governs with Parliament. But there is a real drive, a real godly drive to improve the nation's morals because they're worried that a sinful nation will bring down the wrath of God. They're not killjoys for the sake of it. They are trying to save people's souls and they worry that God will punish them if they don't and so under the commonwealth at the beginning of the 50s they've passed some bits of legislation for example against adultery and against blasphemy under cromwell they don't really pass any more legislation but they do try to enforce some of that which has already been put in place so for example in 1655 they set up what's called the major generals these are military commanders for the regions of england and they are tasked with trying to stop people from gambling too much from swearing from too much drinking and it's again it's about reform of the nation's morals ultimately the major generals aren't terribly successful and it's worth bearing in mind that the accusations thrown at the Cromwellians for example they try to stop fun like banning racehorse um, meetings is much less about improving the nation's morals and much more about trying to stop large gatherings of people where rebellion might be fermented
1: How did Cromwell's reign, if you like, come to an end?
2: Well, for a man who was both loved by people and hated by people, he managed to die relatively peacefully in his bed. He dies on the 3rd of September, 1658. And although he's not that old, he's absolutely exhausted. He's probably suffering, as he has done for many years, from a form of malaria picked up in East Anglia, His favourite daughter dies in the summer and he is grief stricken at her loss and he may well also have had kidney stones. So it's a whole bundle of things which probably all came together to finish him off, I'm afraid.
1: (laughs) And did England return immediately to having a monarchy?
2: No, it didn't. Cromwell was succeeded by his son, Richard. Now, the problem with Richard is that he just doesn't have Cromwell's experience and authority, and he doesn't have Cromwell's standing within the army. And he lasts for about nine months. He's more of a parliamentarian. He's not leadership stuff in a very difficult world. And eventually, some of the army grandees ask him to resign, and he does resign. One gets the sense it was a huge, (laughs) probably with relief, And then there's a year of really difficult political ups and downs between army and parliament and so on until a man called George Monk comes down. He's been the commander in chief in Scotland and he comes down from Scotland with his army to effectively settle the situation. And when he reaches London, although he's essentially on the side of Parliament, it becomes apparent that there is no way forwards as they are, and that the only solution is to reinstate the monarchy. And so they send out a call to Charles II, who is in the Netherlands at the time, and invite him to come back as Charles II, the King.
1: Cromwell's seen by some as a genocidal dictator, yet at the same time he appears on lists of the 10 greatest Britons of all time. Why is there such a division about him and his legacy?
2: Well I think it's largely because we have allowed the facts about Cromwell to be misinterpreted to suit our own uses. Because for some people he represents ideals of parliamentary democracy, religious tolerance, military supremacy, and social mobility, as we've discussed already. Of course, for other people, he represents the very worst of imperialist aggression, military brutality, and probably religious persecution. Now, none of these are correct, but you can see in the events of his life where they all come from. I mean, Cromwell was neither genocidal nor a dictator, but he certainly wasn't either an angel of democracy. But because he's one of the few figures that most people have actually heard of in history, His actions are often used by people who have a point to make without really bothering to understand actually what happened.
1: Are there any signs remaining in British life today of Cromwell's period?
2: Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, in the aftermath of the Cromwellian period, everything was undone. All the things that he had done pretty much were swept away. But actually, one of the major things that he did was he gave the country an experience of relative religious freedom. Although the restoration regimes try to brush that under the carpet, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. So we can perhaps assign the multiplicity of religious belief that we still enjoy today, back to this initial period when people realised you could all worship differently and still remain a nation. There is of course the British Army, as we mentioned before, which owes its roots in the new model army. I think perhaps those are some of the key ones that one might point to.
1: So after the restoration, Cromwell's remains were dug up and put on display and beheaded. Not a popular figure, and yet today there is a statue of Cromwell still outside the Palace of Westminster.
2: Yes, well, of course, Cromwell's body has to be treated badly by Charles II because he has to make an absolute statement that this is what happens to traitors. And don't forget, he was responsible for beheading his father, so you can imagine that this wasn't a happy relationship. And so he's dug up, he's hung briefly. The body is then taken down and buried, but the head is stuck on a spike outside Westminster Hall and remains there for 20 years until it falls off its spike and doesn't get reburied eventually until 1960. So that is a political action by Charles II to make a point about don't rebel against your sovereign. There is, as you say, a statue outside Parliament, and I think that's partly because in the Victorian period, the statue was put up in 1911, Cromwell really began to personify for the emerging British Empire some great ideals, the idea of military supremacy, the idea of religious toleration, the idea of parliamentary importance, a whole lot of things that the Victorians understood, in particular the idea of the middle classes, the rise of the middle classes as people of importance. And so I think we can see the statue outside Parliament as a representation if you like of Victorian ideals and it's now of course become a historical item in its own right
1: Rebecca thank you very much for speaking to me Well thank you How and why history